Our uh, scripture this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles. This is chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Let's listen together for the word of God. Now, the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why do you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Then Peter began to explain it to them step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as it had upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced, and they praised God, saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As Marianne was passing me after she got her coffee, she pointed out that Jeff and I are twins today. Which, as you may, which as you may know, happens quite a bit. Um, you can tell Jeff's in vacation version, though, because he's got sandals on. I've got regular shoes. Um, so worship's going a little bit long today. We had a, a, lot, of, um, a lot of things to share during prayer time. Um, so the, the kids are back with us. I want to let you know I'm going to be talking a little bit about um, the separation policy in the service today. And so if that's something, a conversation you don't want to have um, with your kids, you can, you can send them with Becky, and she'll talk to them about unicorns and rainbows. <laughs> no, we, did, we did go long today. So Becky's over here if you'd like to head out with her. Now, uh, so this, this story, though, about Peter and his friends, uh, this is a story that was so significant to the early Christians that it's actually told twice in this book. Uh, first, in Acts 10, we see the events unfolding in real time. There's the vision of a Gentile God-fearer about a Jewish preacher. There's the vision of a Jewish preacher about the Jewish purity laws. There's the arrival of Cornelius' men. Peter's visit to Cornelius, his sermon about the meaning of Jesus, and the falling of the Holy Spirit on these new Gentile believers. Then, in Acts 11, the story is retold by Peter to his Jewish Christian friends, who are concerned that he is upsetting the natural order of things by bringing the good news about Jesus 
to non-Jews, and even worse, eating with them. He seems to them to be acting as though the law means nothing anymore. And the story became so important to the early believers because it illuminates a struggle that many Christians feel in our hearts and our minds, the tension between the law and the spirit, the tension between judgment and forgiveness, the tension between the rules and freedom from the rules. Throughout the New Testament, we see that the spirit is firmly on the side of freedom, but that many Christians are reluctant to let go of the certainty and clarity and familiarity of religious regulations. This was what was at stake for Peter and his friends. Their identity, their safety, their very relationship with God was wrapped up in laws that told them what they could and couldn't eat and who they could and couldn't eat with. But the Apostle Paul puts the tension between this old covenant and the new covenant in very stark terms. He says the struggle is between death and life. In the second letter to the Corinthians, he wrote, God has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. And this is essentially what Peter tells his Jewish friends. The old covenant ended, ended with a death-dealing border between ourselves and other people groups. But the Spirit is bringing us together to experience new life. God has granted these people asylum with us. Now, this might seem a bit out there at first, but um, the experience of these early Jewish Christians navigating their newfound freedom actually reminds me a little bit of the Netflix show Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Any Kimmy Schmidt fans here? A few? All right, yes. Um, if you can't see it, I haven't seen it yet, I can't blame you. Um, it is a golden age of television out there, people. There is too much content. First world problems. So if you haven't seen it, here's what you need to know. As a teenager, Kimmy Schmidt was abducted by a cult leader who held her in an underground bunker with three other women. The Reverend Richard Rain Gary Wayne convinced them that they were the only survivors of the apocalypse and that the surface of the earth was a lethal hellscape. Inside the bunker, their choices were limited by arbitrary rules and mandatory tasks, like turning a mysterious crank, which was actually a generator that powered things in the reverend's secret room. I should mention that this is a sitcom, <laughs> in case the comedic potential of this scenario is not immediately obvious to you. Anyway, after 15 years, rescuers find them, the media dubs them the mole women, and now they have to catch up on a decade's worth of pop culture while dealing with untreated trauma and relearning how to make choices for themselves. And it's not easy. One of the women, Cindy, longs for the familiarity and routine of bunker life. She finds freedom nearly overwhelming. The reverend has demolished her self-confidence. So she continues to wear the modest clothing required by the reverend and eventually becomes a bunker, bunker salesperson. <laughs> Unpack that metaphor. <laughs> Kimmy, on the other hand, thrives in her new life. She moves to New York City, which is pretty much the polar opposite of bunker life. 
She helps people and tries new things and makes friends and makes mistakes and learns stuff about herself and about the world. And this says something to me about our story this morning about Peter and his friends. When Peter and his Jewish Christian friends enter the new spiritual life in Jesus, the freedom they experience is something like climbing out of the bunker. They've been rescued, and not from Judaism per se, but from the life-crushing rules and tasks of the religious leaders. Jesus could have been talking about the reverend when he said this about the leaders. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. But now that these people are free from these burdens, they have to relearn how to make choices because those leaders are not there to tell them the choices they should make. But with this new freedom comes new responsibility. And at first, the new Christians have a lot of uncertainty about how to use it. When they hear that Peter has been hanging out and eating with non-Jewish Christians, they are upset that he is upsetting the order of things. They're enjoying their new freedom, but still long for the comfort and familiarity of bunker life, where the burdens may have been heavier, but at least you knew who was in and who was out. Now, people do get a feeling of safety and comfort from the certainty and clarity of rules and borders and from having a clear sense of who's in and who's out. And I think that understanding that, the spiritual and emotional truth, goes a long way towards understanding the national events of the past week. The separation of children from their families at the southern border has troubled me, disrupted me, and occupied much of my thinking and my feeling all week. So when I read in this morning's scripture these words, the Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. It caused me to question the rules and borders and laws that make distinctions between American citizens and the desperate people who arrive here seeking safety. And here's some of the things that I learned this week. This was a new policy that the president ordered in order to enforce the law against illegal entry, which is a misdemeanor crime, in the past, families who arrived at the border were held together at immigration detention centers, families and children, while the adults waited for a hearing with an immigration judge. Under the new policy, the adults were arrested and held in federal jail without their children, because children cannot be kept there, while waiting for a hearing with a federal judge. Now, some of the results of this policy so far have been weeping and traumatized children, despondent and sometimes suicidal parents, profits for the private companies who are running these camps, and an uncertain future for children who are being shipped hundreds of miles away from the border. 50 of them arrived in Pittsburgh two weeks ago and are being housed at the Holy Family Institute. And it's unclear whether the government has been keeping the records necessary to reunite these children with their families. The president? his chief of staff, and the attorney general are all on record about their reasons for this. The cruelty of the policy was intended to deter immigrants who are fleeing poverty, crime, and violence in their home countries, and to motivate Congress to accept the president's immigration demands like the wall. 
Now, as public outrage was growing about this over the week, the president doubled down by tweeting that these families are an infestation. This is dehumanizing language. It's intentional. An infestation is the presence of animals or insects in such numbers that they cause damage or disease. And what do you do with an infestation? You exterminate it. And this is the same language used by Nazis in Germany and the ruling Hutu party in Rwanda to justify genocide. This is all very troubling, but I want to draw our attention to something um, related that I'm afraid will be overlooked and that as Christians, I think we should especially pay attention to. The Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, gave a speech defending the policy as a matter of law and order. No surprise there. But he went a step further, making a theological justification for his actions. He referred to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, saying that critics should, and I'm quoting Jeff here, obey the laws of the government because God has ordained the government for his purposes. In other words, if it's legal, it's ordained by God. Don't question, criticize, or think about it too much. And that right there is the bunker life talking, not the abundant life of the spirit, not the spirit of discernment about what's good. Now, when Paul wrote his letter to the Christians in Rome that Jeff quoted, he was writing to a powerless minority with advice about not getting killed by an evil empire. This was the government, after all, that killed Jesus and later arrested and killed Paul. So as these chilling words of the Attorney General sink in, I, I want to let you know that Jeff Sessions is a fellow United Methodist and our brother in Christ. And he is not the first Christian to use Romans 13 in this way. There is a long history of this interpretation. Some examples. Romans 13 was used by British colonists who supported the monarchy, by slaveholders in the American South who profited from chattel slavery, and by Nazis in Germany who committed genocide against the Jewish people. So friends, when the government tells us to get in line with their agenda because God has put them in power, we have a problem on our hands. The Methodist Board of Church and Society released a statement Friday calling Jeff's use of scripture a shocking violation of the spirit of the gospel. The Methodist Council of Bishops issued a statement condemning the family separation policy. And over 600 of our Methodist brothers and sisters have filed a formal complaint against our brother Jeff. The charges include child abuse, immorality, racial discrimination, and dissemination of doctrines contrary to the standards of doctrine of the United Methodist Church. The last part is in reference to our social principles, which explicitly condemn immigration policy that separates families. Just to be clear, this is not a partisan issue. This is not a left versus right issue, a Democrat versus Republican issue. What it is, is a discipleship issue. It is a theological issue. It's a moral issue. And the irony from that perspective is that if our brother Jeff had just finished reading Chapter 13 in Paul's letter to the Romans, he would have come across this conclusion to the whole passage. Owe no one anything except to love one another, 
For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So maybe the family separation policy is the fulfillment of law and order, but it is certainly not the fulfillment of the law, at least not as Jesus and Peter and Paul understood it. Now, what concerned Peter's friends was not just that he was preaching to foreigners, but that he was eating with them. And this is significant because sharing food together is something that friends and family do. So who we eat with says something about who we are. And in some Christian traditions, in order to share in the Lord's Supper, first you have to be baptized or confirmed or a member or even pass a little theological examination to make sure you know what you're doing. And they call that a fenced table. There's a barrier, an obstacle between you and the Eucharist and between those who are allowed to share it and those who aren't. But since I'm speaking so much about Methodism this morning, I'm a Presbyterian pastor, let me add that one of the gifts of the Methodist tradition is the open table, where everyone is invited to share. The open table says God's grace and mercy are available to all. And this is just good theology. Even Jesus, or Judas, was invited to share in the Lord's Supper. We say it every week here, and you could probably say it with me. You don't need to be a member of this church or of any church in order to share with us in communion. All you need is a heart that is hungry for the gifts of God. And to put that in relevant terms, there's no border patrol at the Lord's table. No one here is going to ask to see your membership card. No one's going to check your papers to make sure you've been baptized properly. No one's grading a Kingdom of God citizenship test to make sure your doctrine is in order. No one here is going to check the gender listed on your birth certificate. No one will ask to see your bank statement or your voter registration, your passport, or your sobriety coin. Because the gospel is that whether you are Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, male or female, queer or straight, capitalist or socialist, healthy or sick, you are welcome at the table. Because none of those things makes us worthy or unworthy of coming to Jesus. None of that makes us worthy or unworthy of love. None of that makes us worthy or unworthy of compassion. It is God's grace and mercy that make us worthy. We are made in God's very image. God's mercy is not limited by our net worths, our genders, our sexual orientations, our political affiliations, our health, our doctrines, and certainly not by our nationalities. So in a few moments, we will share together in the bread and the cup, in communion with each other, and in communion with God. And so I invite you, as we do that, let us be praying silently for those who are separated from each other, far from each other, and let us also pray for those who are far from God. Amen.